You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Two weeks ago, Israeli air defenses intercepted two rockets over Tel Aviv. They'd been fired by militants in the Gaza Strip, and since then, there's been retaliatory Israeli airstrikes and more rocket fire. It's one of the biggest military escalations between Israel and Gaza-based militants since they went to war in 2014. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to break all this down for you. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Hello. Let's get a sense of perspective here, right? Jen, what, is, what has happened since the war in 2014? So you've had a lot of low-level flare-ups and violence, right, especially on the border between Israel and the Gaza Strip. People have kind of not really been paying that much attention to the conflict in terms of, like, a full-out war. But that all changed two weeks ago when two rockets were fired from Gaza toward Tel Aviv. Now, that's a really big deal um, because— the rockets that are fired, this happens pretty regularly, actually. They tend to hit way further south in Israel, and they tend to land in, in areas that are kind of like open areas and don't injure people usually um, or, or do much destruction. They're scary, but they don't tend to have a huge effect. Now, Tel Aviv is a huge major city in Israel. It's a major population center. And so this was a really big deal. It was the first time we've seen this in years. When these rockets are incoming, there's this— air raid siren that goes off and people have to like scramble to find their nearest bomb shelters. It's really terrifying. So people, of course, expected escalation. And sadly, that's what happened. The Israeli military claims that it hit around 100 targets related to the Islamist group Hamas, which has controlled Gaza for over a decade now. And it followed a typical playbook for Israel where they hit these targets but tried to hit the ones where there aren't really people inside. So they hit empty buildings that relate to, you know, drone development centers, TV stations, those kinds of things, and claim that no one really has died. But that's a pretty big jump to go from a couple of rockets towards Tel Aviv towards hitting 100 targets inside a very small piece of land uh, and and against an enemy that really cannot fight back against Israeli air power. Now, at one point, we thought that would be the end of it. But then uh, another rocket was fired that went pretty far north in Israel, in fact, north of Tel Aviv, uh, hitting a town in central Israel and hit hit someone's house 
they hit someone, not only did they hit someone's house, but they injured seven people inside. Including right. several young, very young children. Yeah. It was it was a family, and and that in Israel is the kind of thing that will demand a significant military response. Now, Hamas, the militant group that controls the Gaza Strip, denied responsibility for this rocket fire, uh, but Israel was furious. So we had more retaliatory airstrikes, and then it went a little bit further. So Israel even called up its reservists in the IDF and the Israel Defense Forces. That made a lot of people think, uh-oh, maybe we're going to have like a full war, you know, an actual like ground invasion of the Gaza Strip, which would be a huge, terrifying escalation of war. Benjamin Netanyahu was in the United States to meet with President Trump when this second attack happened. He immediately cuts his trip short, says, I got to go right back. I got to have, you know, emergency meetings with my, you know, security officials. We got to figure out what to do. So it was this really terrifying escalation. There's been this tentative ceasefire that isn't really seeming to be holding that great. It's really tense right now. Egypt is working behind the scenes to try to broker some kind of agreement between the two sides. Absolutely. So why is all of this happening now? We should be upfront. It's actually not really clear what sparked the original rocket fire. And I, I want to be clear. The first two rockets intercepted over Tel Aviv, uh, according to the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, the Israeli intelligence and military people think that those rockets were accidents. Like, that's this isn't just an excuse that the militants are saying. Like, this is what the Israeli military thinks. And then the other aspect here is that they're just political calculations on both sides that has led to the escalation that we've seen. Just start with Israel their side of this, the political calculation in Israel. There's an election coming up on April 9th, big, giant national election. Benjamin Netanyahu is, once again, as prime minister, up again for election. He's the right-wing candidate. He typically benefits, and politicians on the right in general in Israel, benefit from big security crises right before elections. They're very hawkish. They're very, you know, much more We need to have a a tougher position toward the Palestinians, toward Gaza in particular. And so in previous years, if there was a big security flare-up and Benjamin Netanyahu and his party responded very forcefully, that tends to boost numbers and, and help them. So on that side, there is some incentive to respond really forcefully by, like Alex said, hitting 100 Hamas military targets. But it's a little bit different this year, right? Well, it's tricky, right? So... This time, this isn't like a straight right-left election in Israel. There's a divide between the right and the mainstream competition, the centrist competition, a new party led by a former chief of staff of the IDF, so a top Israeli general, right? And this guy's name is Benny Gantz. Uh, He is a serious competitor. He's polling ahead of Netanyahu right now. And so he, uh, you know, as a former top general, has really strong security bona fides, right? And so Netanyahu could be concerned that any serious risk to Israeli security or threat from Gaza might make Israeli voters flock to the general, not him. So in order to navigate that, he can't be seen as being weak or tough or slow, right? The political incentives point him to an overreaction, not an underreaction to anything that continues to happen. Right, which helps explain why he immediately cut his trip short. It was like, I have to go back and be in my country because imagine this going down and our leader's not even here. He's over in America. Right. Dereliction of duty. You exactly. got to come home. Right. I mean, that's reasonable on non-political grounds, right? right. Like, if no, I were exactly. Him, go yeah. back to. Yeah. For sure. With or without but, election, go home. <laughs> but you also have to add in the fact that Netanyahu is currently under pending indictment yeah. for a series of corruption charges, including bribery and fraud. So you have all of that. 
next to this guy who's running against him as a centrist, who is the strongest Israeli military general. So on the Israeli side, again, you have this incentive to escalate or to respond forcefully. I should say I've heard from from experts about this that Netanyahu, of course, his incentive was to respond, but the the usual refrain was within reason. Right. Like, as bad as it seems that, and well, as bad as it is that Israel just sends you know a hundred or so airstrikes, like that in a weird way is a within reason response to this kind of situation. Like that's where we're at, and so right. the incentive for him to do a full blown war that we are worried about and is still a possibility, like that is something that he also wants to avoid. Right. It's worth saying neither side wants. Correct. Correct. A full-blown war, yes. right? And and that, that actually does bring us to the Palestinian side, which is a lot murkier, right? Because on the Israeli side, you have political incentives, but a desire for a lack of war. On the Palestinian side, you have multiple different factions. Yeah, but you also still have political incentives while also a desire to avoid a full-blown war. It's just a lot more complicated. Hamas, like we said, has denied involvement in any of these rocket launches. The first one, they're like, it was an accident. We were cleaning the rockets. We were cleaning the machinery. One went off, which, sure, fine. Maybe the first time around, that's a fine excuse. You try it a second time. We'll see. (laughs) Who among us has not been cleaning a rocket and (laughs) accidentally (laughs) fired one over Tel Aviv? Right. I mean, it happened just last week to me. Shoot me one, shame on you. Exactly. (laughs) But, But more seriously, Hamas does have some reason why it, it could be the ones actually doing this. Hamas, again, is in charge of the Gaza Strip, was elected in a fairly democratic election. They've been in charge of running Gaza for a very long time. And things aren't going great in the Gaza Strip, not just because of Hamas's terrible management of the economy, but also in part because they're under Israeli blockade uh, and have very difficult time getting you know basic goods, food, and medicine. But people in Gaza are not super thrilled with Hamas's leadership. And there have been protests and a bit of an uprising against Hamas. So if you're Hamas and you have all these people in your territory protesting your leadership and the lack of basic services, starting an escalation toward war with Israel is a really good way to divert attention from the fact that you suck at running the territory under your control. The problem is that Gaza is home to a bunch of different militant factions, right? Right. One of them is Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And there is uh, some belief that this particular militant group, which again is independent nominally of Hamas, did fire the rockets. Now, Hamas plays a weird game with these groups often where it gives them tacit permission to fire the rockets, uh, but then says, oh, we didn't do it. It's no, We're not responsible. And that can engineer a security crisis to their benefit. Right. But they avoid actual blame directly for it. Right. It's like a plausible deniability thing. Exactly. The question is the extent to which they are exerting control over the groups in this case, if it is in fact one of these groups, which we don't know. Right. It's really right. difficult to figure out. And to make it even more complicated, because why not? There's some reporting out there And it seems fairly credible, although, again, we haven't verified this ourselves, uh, that Iran was actually going over the heads of Hamas directly to PIJ, to Palestine Islamic Jihad, and telling them to fire these rockets. Now, why they would be doing that is a really complicated question. Bottom line, it probably has to do something with elections if they were doing that, right? Try to disrupt the election, maybe see if we can get Benjamin Netanyahu out of power. Bottom line is that we don't really know who is behind this. But at the end of the day, Israel is still going to blame Hamas because Hamas is the organization in charge of this territory. So Israel has said in the past, and again, look, even if it was PIJ, right, 
this is your territory. This is your job. You're in charge of security. And if there are rockets coming from your territory, we are going to blame you, regardless of whether you pulled the trigger. Exactly. And this is why you see the Israeli military very quickly after these rockets have been shot to say Hamas is responsible. Now, obviously, Israel has more intelligence than Vox.com does. So maybe they actually know something that we don't. In fact, they definitely know something that we don't. But at the end of the day, it also comes down to that, as Jen said, right? Like, regardless of if it is Hamas, of course, then blame them. If it's PIJ or Iran working with PIJ or Iran by itself, whatever it may be. Uh, At the end of the day, they're going to go, Hamas, you own the Gaza Strip. Like, you know, (laughs) the buck stops with you. But all of this chaos, not knowing who's behind it, could it be Iran? Could it be PIJ? Could it be Hamas? Who do we talk to about this? Right? If we need to sit down and talk about de-escalation, where do we go? Really highlights the the crux of this crisis, which is that the, the really tense kind of stalemate that has been going on between Israel and Hamas and the Gaza Strip for years is never really stable. It's just not active at any given time, and then there are these flare-ups. But even small things like this could have been an accident, right? It could have been two accidents. But it causes this huge flare-up because the situation underlying, right, there's no peace agreement. These people are actively still at war Because that's not settled, any little flare-up can lead to potentially massive escalation and another onset of a full-blown conflict. And there's another problem, which is that it is uh, more difficult to negotiate with Hamas than other Palestinian factions. For an understanding of sort of why the international dynamics here, it's worth listening to U.S. Vice President Mike Pence at the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee's big conference on this Monday. APAC. Peace can only be negotiated with partners who are committed to peace. And today's rocket attack by Hamas proves that Hamas is not a partner for peace. Hamas is a terrorist organization that seeks the destruction of Israel, and the United States will never negotiate with terrorist Hamas. That makes things a little tricky, because the U.S. could play a role in brokering peace, It doesn't want to do that in these situations because it has this ideological view that Hamas cannot be negotiated with. But how on earth are you going to bring the situation in Gaza to at least a more stable equilibrium without talking to one of the two major parties involved? Exactly. And he's right in the sense that Hamas is a terrorist organization. That is true. It's also, as a close friend of mine has done a lot of really amazing research on, It's a hybrid organization, which is it's also a political body that, again, has legislators and has people who run bureaucracies. And if you are going to ever make peace between Israel and the Palestinians, you have this entire chunk of land, the Gaza Strip, that is governed by a terrorist organization. So if you want to make peace, they're going to have to be involved somehow, or you're going to have to figure out a way to get them not to be in power anymore. And that's why we have still, to this day, ended up in this really awful stalemate. And let's not forget about how important it is to solve this as hard as it is, because we've just what we've just seen is that two-plus rockets could upend an election, lead to many people dead, and roil an already horrible situation. I mean, that that is— almost the definition of, like, the knife edge, right? It's just constantly teetering on this brink. And if you're going to automatically not negotiate with one side that could push it one way or the other, then you're just going to let it fall. 
So we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a much less heavy story about clocks. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This week, the EU voted to scrap daylight savings times, which is interesting in and of itself because I really deeply despise time changes. But it's also interesting as part of our larger Brexit series. It gives you a little window into what exactly, uh, you know, the anti-EU people in Britain and the rest of Europe think about the EU as an institutional body. But let's start with the sort of basic stuff, right? So the EU leaders got together and they voted to get rid of daylight savings times? The time's just different now? Yeah, so they got together and voted to abolish daylight saving time. This will be starting in 2021. And the basic reasons are, one, it's just dumb to constantly cause this disruption. There are plenty of, like, scientific studies out there that it's, like, disruptive for health. They cited issues with disease because it throws off people's circadian rhythms, right? It's It throws off your sleep cycle, throws off your schedule. Uh, it just screws you all up, I think. Yeah, this is something that uh, my family in Spain has been complaining about forever. And my abuela especially believes that, like, the fact that the time changes makes her sicker. And in, it's just because she's generally always sick. But it's <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's mostly – it just mostly has to do with, like – so one thing about Spain particularly is that, like, primetime TV is late. So when the time changes, like, everyone's time is off. And so, like, her favorite show won't come on until, like, 11 p.m. instead of 10 p.m., which is already stupid. And that's uh, late for... For abuelas, for abuelas. And, and me. Is it, is it, don't, don't abuelas also in Spain eat dinner at, like, 10 p.m. or whatever? That's, yeah, dinner is, is usually pretty late. Lunch is around 3, and then dinner's around 10 or 11. So, like, that's why prime time... Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. I'm always upset about Europe and time. I've got other Spain-related time things if you want me to go into it. I'm so, so you can see why this was a big deal <laughs> in yes. Europe based on Alex's <laughs> personal testimony. When the EU made this decision, they cited, like, polls that this is widely popular, widely supported to make this change. But it doesn't mean that everyone supported this change, right? It's disruptive to businesses. They have been doing this for decades. 
And it's a big disruption to suddenly change. Okay, I think this is a really useful kind of microcosm of the issue that people have, like Brexiters, with the EU. So you have this body, right, This the EU parliament, that comes together. You have all these representatives from all these different, you know, 20-plus EU countries getting together, voting, and making this decision that impacts you in the UK or in Spain or wherever. And it's like, well, I didn't vote for all of those parliamentarians, right? I, I don't want, you know, maybe my representative voted against this, but because it passed, now I have to do with this random body way out in Brussels told me I have to do. Now I have to not change my clocks or do change my clocks. And it's the kind of decision that, while this is pretty minor, right, imagine this is a vote on immigration policy or something. And you can see why people are like, screw you. I'm not going to do what you told me. I'm going to do what I want to do in my own country. Yeah, this is the common complaint about the EU, that there's a democratic deficit, and that the fact that there is this supranational body in Brussels taking decisions out of sovereign hands. This is what you hear. You've heard this from the Brexiteers, and you hear this everywhere. That said, I'm I'm okay with this decision. Um, one, because, again, Europe and time is bad. And two, Actually, European countries have used time as a way to make, like, political moves. Here's just another example from Spain, because I've got thoughts. Um, before World War II, Spain actually changed—like, Barcelona, by the way, is, like, right on—is, like, directly south of London. And yet, it moved its time one hour forward in order to be in line with Germany, so that during World War II, like, Spanish and, and German uh, forces could, like, better coordinate. Spain was not involved in World War II, although Hitler did some stuff in Spain. But point being that, like, this is the kind of stuff that, like, actually countries can use time to their advantage to make political moves. And so, like, if we can take that nonsense out of European countries' hands, like, I'm fine with that, too. Right. So I, I see that as the case for the EU, right? Like, that's yes. why you need something like this when you want to coordinate more tightly across the continent. For to trade, have, even, yeah, things like that. Right. Yeah, to have, like, a, a broader set of rules that govern these things. And you could make the same democratic deficit argument, if you wanted to, about, uh, say, the U.S. Congress, right? If you're from Maryland and both of your Maryland representatives vote against, in the Senate, vote against a particular law, and it still passes, well, you could say, Marylanders didn't want this, right? So the difference in Europe is that there isn't that shared sense of identity, but not all Europeans see the EU as the fundamental level of sovereignty. In fact, they believe it to be their country that should have the final say. And that's where this anger seems to come right, from. Right. And that's why you heard in the arguments for Brexit leading up to the original Brexit referendum, a lot of calls for take back our sovereignty, right? And again, a lot of it was related to things like trade policy, things like immigration policy. And we should probably note, speaking of Brexit, because the UK is, well, Brexiting and pulling it out of the EU, it did announce when this time change announcement was made that, oh yeah, we're totally going to keep our own time daylight savings decision uh, once we're out of the EU because we don't have to do what you guys say anymore. Of course they did. Of course they did. Of course did. they did. Look, all right. We're going to leave you guys there. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for all the great work that she does. And uh, if you want to learn more about things that are happening in Israel right now, specifically the very interesting dynamic going on with the Golan Heights and U.S. recognition of Israeli control there, you should listen to uh, Today Explained, which had a great episode on this. Check it out. And if you also want to do us a even bigger favor, please, we're doing an audience survey. It's at voxmedia.com slash pod survey. It really helps us out. It just takes a couple minutes.
What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.